0: I'm your host today, Audrey Greenberg, co-founder of the Center for Breakthrough Medicines. And my co-host is Mike Dever, founder and CEO of Brandywine Asset Management. Hey, Mike. Hello there, Audrey. So nice today to we have a great, yeah, how you doing? We have a great guest today, Dr. William Morrison. He is the director of the Division of Musculoskeletal Imaging and Intervention at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. So I'm excited to talk to him, but first I have a couple of questions for you. What is happening in this market? It is so volatile. Nobody knows where to put their money. How to protect themselves? Do they just take their money off the table and hold it in cash? How can we protect ourselves? Give us some color.
1: Well, we're getting we're getting those questions a, a lot um, with the especially what's happening recently as we take this show with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, a lot of people were just shocked by that because. It, the market reaction to that was the day that happened, the market rallied strongly. And right. I think it's just one of those things. Markets are behaving in a sort of an odd way. That's how they, they always are, really. And after really a lot of time, the last six months, we've seen a lot of um, negativity in, in the tech industry. And a lot of these stocks have really fallen off quite a bit. So they were they were oversold and due for a bounce. But the, the key, I think, is... Um, these these events happen. Um, they are, they are difficult. You it's very difficult for people to try to market time, you know, get in and out at the right time. There, there were a lot of people that sold that morning of the invasion because the market was down three percent and then rallied. So people made the wrong decision early on, saw big losses in those positions of reasons that they should have stayed in at the end of the day. Uh, so we we generally try to say. Don't market time, but there are different ways you can protect your accounts against events like this that, that, you know, cause damage to them.
0: Yeah. How do you do that? What do you protect yourself? And like, what about retirement accounts? You know, what do you do in those? And I I just really have been feeling a little bit lost lately.
1: Right. Okay. so what a lot of people do um, because they can't market time, they generally just settle to buy and hold and they create a portfolio that they believe is diversified. But the reality is stocks are diversified when they're going up. They tend to be uncorrelated and they act a little differently from each other. But when things go down, they become highly correlated and everything seems to fall together. So exactly when you need non-correlation, you need the protection, you don't have it when the markets are dropping. So there are products on the market today that enable people uh, to hold stock positions and have them protected on the downside. Okay. Now, most of those that are out there, and there's one that's become quite large that J.P. Morgan has, um, they do that with a trade-off. They limit the upside.
0: Right. So you,
1: you may get downside protection, but overall, over a full cycle, you end up with lower returns in the portfolio. Um, so I, I don't know if I would recommend that to people.
2: That So what do you Uh, recommend
1: Well, so, I mean, you know, kind of talk our book. You know, what we've done is develop based on the work we've done in our trading over the last 40 years, uh, a concept called risk replacement. And what that does is replace the risk you have for owning a market like the S&P 500 with a more diversified portfolio, but still retain the upside exposure of that original S&P 500. And we do that by, owning the S&P 500, for example, and we've done the same thing with the NASDAQ 100, and then protecting the downside with put options. So for example, year to date, our NASDAQ 100 product is flat. The NASDAQ 100 is down 15% um, because the puts just offer protection to it. And then uh, the, the puts are paid for by a broadly diversified portfolio, So it's essentially using modern modern portfolio theory, which states that you should really diversify your portfolio, but it's really diversified across a variety of return drivers, as I refer to it in in my book, um, that are uncorrelated to each other and enable you to make money regardless of what the stock market direction is doing, whether it's going up or down. So you've replaced the risk of owning the S&P with something that's a lot less risky and offset that risk with the put protection. in the end you could end up actually with greater returns um than you would have just holding stocks because you're limiting the downsides so for example now if the market recovers you're recovering from a much higher level instead i really wish i would have listened to
0: you a couple of months ago
1: <laughs> yeah and so we get that from people as well yeah. and 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 the issue we have you know for for them is it's it's never the wrong time to make the right move yeah and it, yes, we we could have protected you had you been an investor with us two months, three months, six months ago. But the reality is, over time, if you end up with less risk and greater returns, it's it's never the wrong time to to do something like that. And and risk replacement, you can it's something we invented, you know, essentially. But there's other ways to do that yourself with protecting your portfolio with put options and then creating a diversified portfolio to help off pay for those put options. But um, there's, there's things on the market that, you know, we wouldn't think are as good, but they're, they provide downside protection as well.
0: Why aren't you limiting your upside though? That's understandable. So if the market rebounds, how are you still getting the same upside?
1: Yeah. So the, if you kind of think of it, that if the market's say going up 10% a year and you're paying for the cost of protecting that with puts that cost, like can at the money put which means it starts paying out as soon as the stocks start falling that costs about half that to hold each year so that's maybe five percent the cost of that so if the market just goes up ten you're losing five you're only going up five
2: oh, I see. but if then you
1: layer in this return driver diversifier that we call that we've you know developed to pay for the puts to earn that five percent a year okay you've got your five percent back and now you have downside protection from the first dollar loss all the way down to, to zero you're protected mm-hmm. but the upside isn't lost by that five isn't reduced by that five percent return because you're offsetting it with something else so you can offset it with a portfolio now if you think about it logically that only needs to make five percent a year so right there it's half as risky as the s p which is making ten percent a year because mm-hmm. you only need to make half that to pay for the cost of the put protection to protect your downside so that's why it can earn a greater return because the puts are being paid for, and if the market drops normally and it has to recover, like in the financial crisis, the market dropped over 50%. Had to make 100% to get back to even. You know, With this strategy, the, those, the protection would have stopped the drop, even at the worst case, depending on the structure of the portfolio, mm-hmm. at maybe 20%. So now when you make 100% back, you're up over 50% already in new high ground not just back to even. So that's how you can earn a higher return because you protect the downside. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive to most people, but protecting the downside, reducing losses should properly structured lead to higher returns. over time.
0: Okay. Well, that's very, it's very interesting. And it's good to know that there's hope out there for those of us that, um, you know, may have lost money in the market. So <laughs> oh, we days. do have a, Well, we do have a question um, from the audience, of course, as we always do. Um, Ted Donaldson from Philadelphia asks, what is a target date fund?
1: Okay, Ted, Um, they're pretty simple. It's a target date fund, and there's there's hundreds of these out there now, is a fund that does the asset allocation between stocks and bonds for you. So the traditional asset allocation that might be 60% stocks, 40% bonds, doesn't suit everybody. But a target date fund is designed so that if you're retiring later like in 2050 2045 it'll have more stocks in the portfolio today because it assumes you can take more risk because you have more earnings potential between now and when you retire or a target date fund that's 2025 has a big concentration of bonds in it because bonds are supposedly less risky so you have more allocation there so you're not going to lose a lot of money when you're nearing the end of your earning years and going in or are actually in retirement so it's just something that automatically does the allocation for you the longer dated target date funds are riskier the nearer date funds have more stocks in them i'm sorry the, the longer date funds have more bonds The nearer dates funds have more stocks
0: makes sense makes sense well if you out there want to send your questions into money matters tv for mike or i to answer please do so as follows You can have your questions answered on Money Matters. Please go to our website, money-matterstv.com. On our homepage, click on the banner on the right that says, send us your questions. While you're on our website, you can find information about our hosts and guests, as well as show notes and links about this show and past shows. Money Matters is also available as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can listen to Money Matters while you're on the go. That website address again is Money M-O-N-E-Y-Matters M-A-T-T-E-R-S-T V dot All right, with that, Mike, we introduce our special guest today, Dr. William Morrison. Warm welcome to you and welcome to Money Matters TV. Once Thank again, you. Yeah, it's great to see you. Uh, and all your accolades behind you. Uh, I just want to give you an audience, a quick introduction. So you are the director of the Musculoskeletal Imaging Institute at Thomas Jefferson University, and by the way, very interestingly, medical director of Trace Orthopedics, as it says below your face there. And what I also found found interesting, which is probably what everyone else found so captivating, is the medical care consultant for the Eagles, the Flyers, the Sixers, the PA Ballet, all these wonderful institutions that we have in Philadelphia. So welcome. And why don't you just tell us about yourself? You have such an interesting background.
2: Yeah, thank you. And it's an honor to be here. And uh, I'm not a financial person, uh, so I hope I can uh, give your audience some good information here. But I've been in the business for 25 years, um, did my scuttle training here in Philadelphia at Jefferson, and I uh, was in the Air Force for quite a, while, a little while. Um, and then came back to Jefferson and uh, started my academic career. I've uh, authored or co-edited 13 books, over 250 scientific papers and chapters. And uh, along the way, I got three patents and uh, have a product on the market and uh, founded a a company, Trace Orthopedics. So um, hopefully uh, that will uh, account for something.
0: Definitely, definitely. That's um,
1: that. I, I wrote one book, and it took most part of two years of all my spare time. Uh, I, I can't a imagine. A lot of time
2: at coffee shops. A lot of coffee shops.
1: Right. Exactly. And uh, and and the articles, papers. Um, that's 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 quite impressive. Um, now, I with the uh, sports teams, uh, how does that work from a, a business aspect? Um, how do you how do you write Yeah. It? So
2: it's. It's very interesting um, being involved with it, and my my colleagues are mostly uh, deal with players nowadays. But um, in the early days, I learned some interesting things, which is it's not always the uh, it's not like the teams search out the best uh, doctors. It's usually large um, institutions like hospitals and uh, large orthopedic groups that really kind of bid for the job the the contract. And so that's why at most sporting events, you'll see large medical institutions or orthopedic groups advertised because they buy advertising uh, for those teams. And then to take care of them, um, the teams can switch at any time uh, as their contract gets renewed. So, but um, what's good is that usually these are the best doctors in the area. So that's a good thing. Now, me as a radiologist, we're on call 24-7-365 to take care of these players Um, so if there's a game going on, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, image them right away. So we had a quarterback get injured, uh, years ago and right before halftime. And they literally came up, uh, Broad Street with a, uh, entourage of police cars. And I greeted them outside the hospital, brought them in, scanned them, and they had a result before the end of halftime. So that's kind of the service we, we offer. But it is interesting from a, a contractual perspective, you know, players, unlike us, you and I, players will tend to hide injuries if they're in the last year of their contract and they'll tend to uh, maybe accentuate injuries perhaps or be very sensitive for injuries if they're in the first year of contract and they're secure. Um, Another interesting point is if you see a player coming through for like a draft pick or a free agent, if you find that they've gotten a one-year deal or it's packed with incentives, oftentimes we found something on the imaging that is a warning, like a red flag for the team.
0: Well, Super interesting. How did you go from making it as a doctor, you're obviously a brilliant uh, doctor, to, to sort of becoming an investor and an entrepreneur? And how do you get that? I mean, it's a risky thing to do, right? You have to have a certain personality. So what made you decide to do it? And How did you do that transition?
2: Yeah, it's very hard. Number one, we don't really have training for it. So you have to kind of pick it up as you go. Secondly, there are some disincentives. Um, You know, if you're in private practice, for example, your incentive is to produce a lot of work, to do a lot of clinical work. So anything you do like this is in your spare time. It's the same in academics like I am. But in the early days, you're incentivized really to do research and write chapters and give lectures. So that's kind of what they want you to spend your time on, in addition to clinical work. And you have to build up your reputation as well. So I spent my time doing that for the most part, but um, anytime you're working with uh, patients, with medical devices and products, you see that there are some obstacles or some inefficiencies. And it might be an application, a software, it might be hardware, like a medical device. So um, you just turn that switch on in your head and say, well, what can I do that will help uh, make this uh, easier or faster for everyone else? Um, and a lot of times people uh, just do what they've been told to do or what they've trained to do. And they don't think kind of in that, in that way, like you know, people do whatever they've been taught and they teach that to the next people coming along. But if you think about it, you can really change things for the better if you come up with a solution. The solution has to be in your wheelhouse. Like I can, I can say, well, there would be an app that would be great to make this easier. But I don't code. I don't, I don't know anything about writing apps. So that's not my wheelhouse. Whereas simple, you know, mechanical engineering, I, I can, I can handle that. Um, So when I was in the Air Force, um, we were doing uh, procedures on the spine, and I said, you know, it'd be great to have a steerable needle. Um, and there's no steerable needles out there. I searched, and there was no patents for it. So, I uh, designed one, um, flew to Sweden to pitch to a company and uh, called Apriomed, and they liked it. Um, they made a prototype overnight. Uh, we signed the contract and drank Aquavit in the morning. So, uh, you know that's that's how it can go. And so that was my first device on the market. And then um, I was doing uh, procedures a few years ago. And I thought, you know, we can actually, and this was after bilateral shoulder rotator cuff tears that I went through, I said, you know, we can probably repair these through a needle. And so I made a device in my garage, um, pitched it to our innovation office here, and we got a provisional patent. And from there on, that was the beginning of the roller coaster. Do you
1: have a mechanical engineering background?
2: No, I just really enjoy it. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a hobby.
1: Okay. So you self-taught, so you have the medical background, you know what you need to do there, and you have enough knowledge and uh, intuition, I guess, to be able to design from the mechanical side uh, as well.
2: Well, the good thing is I'm, I'm not really that smart. So um, I, <laughs> I try to think of the simplest way of doing stuff, which is generally the cheapest way of doing stuff as well. Um, and I'm also fairly lazy. So I try to come up with the easiest way of doing things.
1: So you're, so you're, you're dumb and lazy. With- yes. 250 articles, 13 books, three (laughs) patents, two companies. Okay, uh, I'd hate to think of what you could do if you actually were smart and energetic. I mean, that- that Not to
0: mention, not to mention he's dealing with all the regulatory compliance of getting a medical device to market. You gotta deal with the FDA. That is not a lazy person's job, that's challenging.
2: That's true, Once, uh, once you get that provisional patent, you need funding and you need um, people to believe in you. So you need to be a bit of a salesman. Um, and also uh, you need to surround yourself with people who know all that stuff. Because I certainly right. don't know the regulatory part. I don't know the financial part, the business part. So I have a f- fantastic partner, our president and CEO, Adam Greenspan, who's taken this to really another level.
1: Well, that's what I was gonna ask you on the business side of it. So you, you, you got this deal with the Swiss company. Did, were they, um, was that deal to, to buy the product or were they an investor? How did you go? How did you find that first round investing? What kind of money did it take to get this product out the door?
2: Well, that is a uh, interesting point is that when you come in to pitch to a company, you have a certain amount of leverage. Um, I had basically zero leverage when pitching that idea because it was just an idea. I had no prototype. I had basically no provisional patent, nothing else. So the company was one I'd worked with before. I had a lot of trust in. And so we had a non-disclosure agreement. I pitched it to them and they did everything. Basically they were the call it uh, uh, medical device development organization, MDDO is, it's what you call it. So they did that function for me, getting the patents, developing it, things like that. And I helped uh, test it, but they were the ones that really brought everything through. Now I don't, get many royalties for it. I don't make hardly any money from that at all. Um, but it did serve as an important uh, function is that um, since it's on the market and going, uh, starting this other company, Trace Pedics, I had some background in medical device development. So it really helped have the investors feel more confident that I could get this uh, device through. That's
0: Super so. interesting. It's got to be challenging with the angel investors. I mean, how do you, how do you do that? What, what If you are an angel, if you're an investor or you're looking for angel financing, what are some of the tips and techniques of, of getting through that process?
2: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'd like to be an angel investor someday. Um, and I do have some tips for angel investors. Uh, if you want to get into it, number one, um, join a, um, an organization. There are angel groups. Uh, we're involved in diligence with Koretsu Forum, which is a fantastic organization. Um they have over 50 uh, uh, separate uh, chapters around the world. And uh, their diligence process is uh, very elaborate, detailed, elegant, and really uh, uh, really puts the company through the ringer. They really find out everything about you. So that really helps if you're starting out to join a group like that. And there are smaller groups, Massachusetts Medical Angels, Delaware Crossing Group we've uh, worked with. Um, but in, in essence, if you're looking at a company, a startup, and I've seen so many uh, companies with bad ideas or or people that don't know how to do, you know, get to market, get a lot of money. And uh, I see these going through. Um, so you really have to, with an angel investor, get some people on the outside that know that specific area that um, are innovators or uh people who think outside the box, but also on the other side, you need some people who uh, do that on a daily basis. They're on the front lines because if you don't have a market for that product, it could be the best product in the world. And sometimes if you make a tweak on a product to make a slight improvement, that's more acceptable to people than having a revolutionary game changing product that they're going to have to change how they practice. So you need people on the front lines to say, yeah, that's going to work. I want that. We need patients to say, I want that, you know, as feedback. Jeff, do, do you see people,
1: angel investors coming to you directly, or are they mostly through like the Gretzo forum or the Delaware group? Um, do they also direct directly? Invest? Yeah,
2: Generally we go to them. So you'll sign up as a startup to these angel uh, forums and uh, you'll pitch to them. And uh, they have different levels. And so if you get through the first round, you go to the second round or finals, and, uh, you know, they will have increasing levels of uh, diligence on your, on your product and your team. Um, and then if uh, you go into final diligence, get a term sheet, that's when you start really dealing with the, uh, the financial part.
0: And you have all a team of folks to help you with that because you're you're self-proclaimed not good at finance, but it sounds like you might be. I have a sneaking suspicion.
2: Well, I'm learning a lot, uh, but you know, my uh, our team is is excellent. You know, um, Paul Giameschi is our uh, superstar board member in the medical device uh, field, and he is really helping us through this diligence process. Adam Greenspan, our president, and CEO, he's uh, multi-talented, um, comes with an engineering background, patent officer, as well as financial background. So it's a real dream team.
1: Uh, how much are you raising now? And what is that, the use of proceeds for that?
2: Yeah, we're raising 1.5 million as our seed, uh, our, our uh, series A round with Koretsu Forum. And uh, once we go through diligence, get a term sheet, and uh, we're all finished with that, um, we're gonna look at, uh, Inviting other groups, like we uh, that we previously pitched to, and other accredited investors to um, invest in. You can always anybody who's a credit investor can invest in our Series A round, um, and that should commence uh, in a few weeks.
0: Wow! Okay. Tell you know what I'm interested is, you know, when I was at Wharton, a lot of the successful um, you know students that were in my cluster and then went on to become very successful had a military background. So I understand that you maybe have some connections uh, from, to the Air Force. T- tell us about that and, and how does that interweave into your success story?
2: Well, uh, in the military, you really learn how to innovate because um, it, it seems like the budgets are very high and they are, of course, but they don't necessarily give the medical corps a whole lot of support. So, I mean, when I was learning spine procedures, we literally had, we didn't have a procedure table So we would bring our patients in and we had two desks and a piece of plywood that we would put our our patients on and use our x-ray machine to go over that patient and piece of plywood. So, I mean, that's what we were dealing with. So when we have a limitation or inefficiency, you really learn how to get around it. And that helps you think outside the box. It helps you turn on that switch that is going to think about solutions for things.
0: Yeah. And what do you see in the future? There's got to be some really cool technology out there. You know, Mike and I talk about all of our injuries on the show all the time. So we want to know, you know, what, what's out there for treating some of the joint pain and some of the other things that are out there, um, especially with the athletes that that really can change the future of medicine.
1: And, and also, I can share the uh, rotator cuff with you. <laughs> yes. I, I've, yes. I've, had, I've had that surgery as well.
2: Yeah. So um, minimally invasive techniques are are going to be very, very important, more important even than they are now, because a few things. I mean, no one likes to get surgery. Um, Number two, the operating room is the most expensive real estate on the planet. It costs about $10,000 an hour uh, to be in the OR, Um, just being there, not even anything else. So anything we can do outside the operating room is going to make the cost of medical care go down. So minimally invasive therapies, basically things through a needle, are going to be even bigger. So what we're doing at Trace Orthopedics is we're repairing tendons through a needle. Um, so if you have a rotator cuff tear, for example, um, instead of waiting a, two, a few years until it completely tears and then getting surgery and six months of rehab, we can address that really early on and put a needle in, and in 20 minutes, you're, you're fixed. We're going to address uh, hip uh, tendon tears in older patients because older patients that get tears, Uh, of tendons at their hip, they get problems walking, they have falls and falls are a big deal in older people. Uh, My mother has that issue. Um, You get muscle atrophy and then it's very hard to recover from. So we're looking to repair those early on and get people, prevent them from going on to get those gait disturbances and falls. Um, So minimally invasive is gonna be big and you'll see a lot of startups coming out for various things around the body. Other things uh, to invest in would be things like personalized care, um, telehealth, for example. Um, COVID has actually helped accelerate the development of these techniques where patients have great access to their doctors because you don't have to go in anymore. You can be sick and stay at home. You can uh, have a telehealth call with your doctor or your PA, and they can work through some issues. Um, in that regard, um, there's a company I consult with called DocPanel and they try to give subspecialty care in underserved areas. So you might be in the middle of Iowa, for example, and uh, you don't have any subspecialists there. Well, DocPanel can basically perform telehealth uh, in a subspecialty uh, uh, expertise level in that underserved area. So that's, that's kind of a, a big deal. Um, monitoring. You probably have an alexa at home or a google assistant well in the future that's going to help you um take care of of chronic diseases and uh monitor yourself so you can have blood pressure pulse uh heart rhythm all those things tied into that assistant that can tell your doctor you know watch out you know so-and-so's you know going into heart failure and they can mitigate that without
1: Right, it's amazing to think
0: what those uh, those devices can do. Definitely, a lot of other things.
2: Artificial intelligence is going to be big. It's not going to take over, as people are concerned about. You're not going to have robot masters, but it's going to be in the background. It's going to be helping us in the background take care of a patient.
0: That's fantastic. We're so excited to see all these developments uh, with medical care and and the amazing things that you're working on. So thank you so much for your time. Our next guest on Money Matters TV is Wendy Eldridge, partner at Markham Wealth. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next time.